We'll start here with quote number one uh, from Xenophanes. The Ethiopians say that their gods are flat-nosed and black, while the Thracians say that their gods have blue eyes and red hair. Yet if cattle or horses or lions had hands and could draw and could sculpt like men, then the horses would draw their gods like horses and cattle like cattle. And each they would shape bodies of gods in the likeness each kind of their own. The Greek philosopher sought to purify ancient beliefs regarding the human relation to the divine. Xenophanes realized that we could not grasp the nature of God according to our human categories. Aristotle echoed Xenophanes' criticism, citing his mockery of singing dirges and making sacrificial offerings to the sea goddess Leucothea. At the end of his metaphysics, Aristotle also criticizes the traditional Greek theological myths for saying that the gods have the form of men and animals and the attributes that follow from their bodily nature. Plato's Euthyphro reveals that fickle gods with conflicting desires do not allow for a unified and universal virtue of piety. The divine transcends bodily form and its attendant weaknesses. Similarly, the Christian tradition purifies many teachings of the ancients regarding our relation to, divine, to the divine. Thomas Aquinas taught that the new law stands to the old law as imperfect to perfect. The New Testament, for example, does not replace the Old Testament Judean understanding of sacrifice, but fulfills it. Analogously, St. Clement of Alexandria argues that the Christian idea of man and his nature does not replace, but perfects some of the best pagan ideas about man and his nature. Pagan learning exposed certain paradoxes about the human condition that are resolved through the coming of Christ. One paradox can be found in the philosophical understanding of the purpose of man. Socrates claimed that the question, how ought one live his life, is the most pressing for mankind. Searching for an answer to this question, the ancients found a universal desire buried deep in the heart, human heart to know the truth. What is more, they found the desire to know the ultimate truth, the source of truth. In other words, they exposed our natural desire to know God, and yet pagan knowledge, technology, and education, and all human enterprise generally, lacked what was necessary to fulfill that desire perfectly. Thus, the paradox arose that the human person's pur purpose consists in knowing God, but man's ability to see God, says St. Thomas, is largely empty. Christ is the solution to this paradox of ancient philosophy, and he fulfills the human desire to see God more perfectly than the greatest philosophers imagined. So to manifest this thesis, I have five sections. Uh, first, I'm going to examine Aristotle's claim that all men uh, desire to know. That's in your outline on the back of the sheet. Then I'm going to show that wonder, the name we use to signify this desire, is a desire to know the first cause for its own sake. That is, wonder can only be satisfied by the apprehension of the most desirable truth, God. Uh, the third section will show that God, this eternal and perfect first cause, is beyond our natural understanding. 
And in the fourth section, I'm going to look at how the Israelites, despite the prohibition of idols, desired to see God's face, and that this desire, along with the use of God's proper name, the Tetragrammaton, expressed a wish for communion with God as a person in the intimacy of friendship, along with the desire to see his essence. And finally, I'm going to show that Christ claims to be the solution to the paradox of the Greeks and the fulfillment of the hope of the Israelites. So, first section. All men by nature desire to know. Hesiod claims that the goddess Iris, Iris sprung from the Greek god Thamos, or wonder. In Plato's dialogue, the Theotetus, Socrates calls the myth, quote, a good genealogy. The ancient Greeks represented Iris in two ways, as a rainbow and as the messenger of the gods. In other words, Iris is the means by which the earth is put in communication with the heavens. The rainbow joins heaven and earth. Iris is the god's messenger to men. For Plato, the relation between man and God begins in wonder, thama. God transcends our nature, and we should approach him in a characteristically human way through desiring and acquiring knowledge. Wonder names a certain desire to know, and Aristotle begins his metaphysics with his most famous claim, all men by nature desire to know. Desire for knowledge is rel relatively evident to our experience. Aristotle simply offers as a sign that men love to use their senses, specifically their eyes, and sometimes not for some practical purpose, but merely for the act of perceiving itself. So everyone likes to, to hear the punchline of a joke or um, that no one wants to leave the football game until they know who's going to win or we stay up too late binging Netflix. So this is why the, the internet and the cell phone are so addicting. It's so satisfying to our desire to know. There is no practical purpose to these actions, like staying up late and binging Netflix. Not only are they not practical, they are impractical. Clearly, it is not just the philosophers, scientists, and historians who have a desire to know. Consider the ancient aphorism engraved on the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, Know Thyself. By considering the aphorism, we realize that it presupposes an audience capable of self-knowledge, while at once not possessing perfect self-knowledge. You only exhort someone <clears throat> to know himself if it is possible for him to do it and possible for him not to. Hence, the object of the exhortation has to be a progressive knower who moves from potency to act in his knowledge. Man, in his most proper activity, moves from imperfect to perfect knowledge. Now, because his ability to know is natural, and every ability is for the sake of its own act, man is, therefore, inclined to the truth by nature. In short, this ancient aphorism assumes a natural tendency in man toward knowledge. Moreover, the desire itself is natural in the sense that we do not acquire the desire by choice, habit, or learning. Our orientation to the truth is so ingrained in our nature that it's impossible for us to reject it. No one likes to discover he is mistaken. We can develop habitual desires for many evils. 
we may develop desires for intemperance or irrational anger, but we cannot develop a desire to make mistakes. On the one hand, we are all pleased when we can demonstrate the truth of our former opinions. On the other hand, we will change our opinion when we fully realize that we have been mistaken. There is no other option. Nonetheless, to say that no one desires to be wrong and everyone desires to be right does not fully capture Aristotle's claim. He is not saying that we all desire to have correct opinions, but to possess knowledge. Wonder is an essential and a proper activity of man. Man is a wondering animal as such. As man has been defined as an animal who lives by faith, so one could define man as an animal who lives by wonder. The fact that the desire for knowledge is universally natural in human beings is a sign not only that knowledge is possible, but also that it is good. And among, hum and among animals, only man wonders. The act of knowing is a good proper to human beings among animals. Second section. Human beings wonder when they become aware of their own ignorance. Now, there are many possible reactions to our awareness of our ignorance. Fear, shame, amusement, anger, mistrust, and skepticism. So we have to explain why a person would react with wonder as opposed to these other passions. One obvious dif difference is that the man who reacts through wonder has a certain disposition towards the truth, and probably with some degree. He has a passion for knowledge. Thus, his desire for knowledge is probably for knowledge for its own sake, which implies that the content of wonder is an intrinsically desirable knowledge. Since some knowledge is more intrinsically desirable than others, the question arises what sort of knowledge could ultimately satisfy our wonder. Nominally, we use the word wisdom to name the most desirable kind of knowledge. Wisdom cannot simply consist in self-knowledge because the most desirable knowledge is of the noblest subject matter, and man, is a progress as a progressive knower, is imperfect. As an imperfect being, man's self-knowledge cannot satiate his desire to know. Therefore, our natural desire to know extends beyond such disciplines as ethics or anthropology, sociology, humanistic studies, history, politics, and so on. His self-knowledge cannot be the cause of his blessedness. <clears throat> blessedness, excuse me. One way to grasp the end of man's desire to know is by realizing that we wonder about the what or why of things, or the cause of things. Wonder itself presupposes a set of circumstances. It, is, it not only presupposes awareness of one's ignorance, but awareness regarding some particular question rather than a general awareness of ignorance. To have wonder, therefore, presupposes a certain kind of knowledge. Particularly, you have to be aware that something is the case, and then you realize that there is more to know, the what or why of it. So you can imagine Aboriginal man seeing the first lunar eclipse. He's looking up at the moon, and then the moon becomes darkened, and he wonders, so he's aware that the moon is becoming darkened, and he begins to wonder, why is the moon becoming darkened? And when he realizes, eventually man realizes, that the, the earth is casting a shadow 
uh, blocking the sun's light, casting a shadow on the moon, then he knows why the lunar eclipse is happening by knowing what a lunar eclipse is. So one would wonder about an eclipse if first he knew that such a thing occurred. He could probably not be whole, he could not be wholly ignorant of it. And second, he would need to be ignorant of the what or why of it. From these preconditions, we can suppose that wonder is looking towards the what or why of things. Again, wonder, as opposed to curiosity, is the name we use to signify the reasonable desire to know. Clearly, the ancients wanted to exclude idle curiosity when they claimed that wonder is the beginning of philosophy. But the reasonable response to wonder is to ask questions. Wonder, as a passion to know in itself, fears error and prompts a reasonable response to such a fear. Thus, it attempts to formulate what it sees and does not see, and therefore elicits questions. According to Aristotle, there are four kinds of questions proper to scientific knowledge. Whether it is, if it is so, what it is, and why it is. So, some examples. So, you can ask whether it is. Is there a fifth perfect solid? Is there such a thing? Then you ask, what is it? What is it? What is the fifth perfect solid? Does the soul exist? What is the soul? Or you can say, um, is something such and such? So does harmony consist in high and, no, high and low notes? For what reason does harmony consist in high and low notes? Does the tangent only coincide at one, one point? Why does the tangent only coincide at one point? We can see from the examples that two of the kinds of questions lead to the other two. After learning that something is such and such, or that it is simply, we turn to the mo more profound questions, why it is so, and what it is. So we have our confirmation that wonder looks to discover the what and why of things. Moreover, these four questions all lead to an inquiry, inquiry into causes. Both if it is so and whether it is, ask whether there is a middle term for demonstration. But why it is so and what it is, ask what the middle term is. And these middle terms are causes. Hence, Aristotle claims all scientific questions ask for the cause. Definition, which is the formal cause, is the middle term of demonstration. All questions that a human being asks regarding scientific knowledge knowledge through the whole, spring from his desire to know the cause. Thus the expression, I wonder, is most commonly followed by the word why. I wonder why. As Aristotle says, quote, we judge that we know each thing when we know the first cause and first principles down to the elements, unquote. And then, <clears throat> only then, excuse me, will our desire to know be fulfilled. Accordingly, Democritus says, quote, I would rather discover one cause than to be master of the kingdom of the Persians. We can say then that wonder is a reasonable passion to know the what or why or cause, two sides of the same coin, of wonderful or awesome things purely for the sake of knowing. This, excuse me, still, what are these wonderful and awesome things? Wonder does not desire to know every cause equally. It desires to know the primary causes. 
since some causes are causes of other causes, and we know a thing through knowing its causes, we know a thing, we know more things, and we know more fundamentally through knowing the more primary causes. In other words, in other words, insofar as something can be more or less a cause, so also one knowledge can be more truly knowledge than another. Wonder can only be satisfied by the apprehension of the most desirable truth, the first cause, which is God. Since all men desire to know, all men implicitly desire to see God. Thus Socrates claims in Plato's Republic that the greatest study of the philosophers is of the good itself. Accordingly, he argues that the philosophical life is the most pleasurable because the philosopher who is best positioned to compare different pleasures, chooses the pleasure of contemplation, and because the pleasures that are associated with the contemplative life are more real than those associated with other kinds of life. At the end of the Ethics, Aristotle lists the attributes of the contemplative life consisting in the highest activity, most love for its own sake, most continuous, most self-sufficient, and providing wonderful pleasures, the mastas edanas, both pure and permanent. Excellent contemplation of God brings about the perfection of the best part of us, which happens to be the part we most are. Plato and Aristotle held, then, that knowledge of, quote, things that are highest by nature, unquote, is the natural purpose of man and the contemplation of this knowledge is what would make life worth living. For the philosopher, happiness is the end of man, and thus the first principle of all moral action. Happiness in this life is understood as contemplation of the divine, beholding the, mo the noblest object, God, in the most perfect act, knowing, of man's most noble faculty, his intellect. In this life, so the ancient thought, the human person's utmost participation in happiness comes from contemplating God, the highest object of the highest act of man's highest power. St. Thomas says, quote, Among all human pursuits, the pursuit of wisdom is more perfect, more noble, more useful, and more full of joy. All right, third section. We have argued that all human beings have a natural desire to know God, yet even throughout a complete life, Man's ability to contemplate divine truths is limited. On the one hand, a philosopher, based on human understanding alone, may come to certainty about some things pertaining to divine nature, that God exists, that he's simple, that he's immaterial, that he's one, that he's good, and so on. On the other hand, many things pertaining to the divine nature are hidden from him, and he will make mistakes concerning even those that available to him. Among other things, Xenophanes is pointing out, while human beings may speak about God on their own terms, with their own humanistic preconceptions, in fact, God is alien to our mode of understanding. The purpose of man consists in the activity of apprehending God, but man's natural ability to see God is largely empty. In his commentary on Psalm 8, Thomas says, Quote number two. Wonder occurs when someone sees the effect and does not know the cause. The cause of wonder is therefore twofold, either because the cause is totally unknown, 
or because the effect manifesting the cause does not do so perfectly. The first does not apply to God, since he produces the effect, as in Romans 1, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. I say that he produces the effect, but not one which perfectly manifests its cause. He thereby remains wonderful. Unquote. Notice that Aquinas is here saying that even when God is known through his effects, as a philosopher knows God, God remains something wonderful, something philosophers would still desire to know. For example, as soon as we know that God exists, we have a natural desire to know what he is. At the same time, the proper object of our understanding is the what it is of something sensed or imagined, and only material beings may be properly sensed or imagined. We have a desire to know what God is, but he exceeds the proper object of our understanding. Consequently, we have recourse to understanding, think, to understanding what we can about God indirectly through what we know about things sensed or imagined. We know God through his sensible effects. Therefore, we know God only through analogy. But all knowledge through analogy recognizes not only, not only similarities, but also differences. And so even the greatest philosophers can never fully be fully satisfied with this kind of knowledge. The philosopher knows God through forms of finite beings, but only a form proportional to God, an infinite form, could be that by which we apprehend what God is perfectly. Speaking even of the knowledge of God naturally available to man, Thomas Aquinas says, the truth about God such as reason could discover would only be known by a few and that after a long time and with the admixture of many errors. While scripture attests to our ability to know about the first cause of being, it makes clear that we do not naturally know all that is desirable to know about God. For many things are shown to thee above the understanding of man. The knowledge of God available to man through God's creation leaves man wanting. It is no wonder then that attention arises in philosophy. God, the thing most worthy of contemplation, cannot be its direct object. Philosophy can show us that we have a natural desire to know, that this desire extends to objects beyond all finite being, and yet the natural fulfillment of this desire is through a finite form proportioned to a finite intellect. Man's life, and therefore his being, consists most of all through his thinking, and yet his mind's desire to know cannot find perfect rest in its natural fulfillment. Our natural understanding is insufficient to fulfill our wonder. Pagan liberal education can only bring about liberty in a highly qualified way. Since truth perfects the life proper to man, philosophy's inability to adequately satisfy wonder is a great form of human slavery. In his Apology, Plato characterized Socrates as stating, I am only too conscious that I have no claim to wisdom, great or small. Unquote. In his Metaphysics, 
speaking about the limits of our ability to know. Aristotle says, quote, man is in many ways in bondage, unquote. He who is in bondage yearns for a savior. Next section. Accordingly, man does not live only by reason. He also lives by faith. Aristotle claims that man is prone to error and continues in error longer than in truth. Nonetheless, even when we get it right, we usually do not know but merely have correct opinion. We live by belief necessarily. Man may be a rational animal, still this animal, for the majority of his life, for the majority of his decisions and positions, lives in a way that is unreasonable in the most strict sense. Most of the positions we take cannot be reasoned in a perfect way. It is faith and reason, fides et ratio. It is not an accident that the two books most printed in history are Euclid's Elements and the Bible. Cultures have intellectual traditions and faith traditions. The West faith tradition affirms and extends man's desire to see God. Quote number three. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand upon the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Scripture is full of the ponderous and the mysterious. Moses prays to see God's glory. Although the Lord will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, the Lord responds that no man can see God's face and live. Like the Greek philosophers, Moses, who stands in for all mankind, desires to see God. However, one can also detect a distinct difference of emphasis between the Greek and Hebrew desires. Philosophers desire to see God in his essence. Moses desires to see God in his glory. God reveals that his glory is found in his face. In fact, the Old Testament refers to the face of God some 100 times. Scripture speaks of God's eyes, ears, hair, lips, mouth, and nostrils. The Israelites sought the face of God through cult. One encounters the face of God in the temple after practicing proper cleanliness with purity of heart. Such is the Old Testament piety in a nutshell. The righteous man who opposes the carnal life hopes for God's blessing, saying, quote, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your form, unquote. The expected vision of God's face, 
an awakening will bring a satisfaction and, quote, joy in our hearts, unquote. Perhaps Xenophanes would criticize Scripture for participating in the humanizing of God. But Scripture is not so straightforward. In the first place, while God states that no man can see his face and live, Scripture earlier says God spoke to the living Moses, quote, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moreover, it appears that God excludes seeing as a part of Israelite worship. When Pompey entered Jerusalem's sacred temple, ascended its steps, cast aside the sacred veil, and entered into the Holy of Holies, he found no graven images. There was no idol. God keeps his face hidden. Apparently, Xenophanes' aphorism, which applied to Ethiopians and Thracians, did not extend to the Israelites. They did not think the divine should be represented by an idol. Human beings desire to look upon those whom they worship, because when we worship, we worship persons, and it is by the use of the cogitative sense power that we naturally intend the person. Man can barely help but to depict God with a human face, as Xenophanes expresses. God prescribes the use of idols, one, to sway our tendency to confuse the image with reality. Second, to purge the carnal nature of our religious sentiment. Third, to emphasize that while the pagan idols were made in the image of man, man was made in the image of God. And fourth, to eliminate our desire to intend God, to think of God, by the use of our cogitative power, and thus emphasize God's transcendence of human modes of knowing. Scripture says, God is spirit, and his, spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's in the Gospel of John. The prohibition of idols does not destroy the sense of God's face. As Ratzinger points out, the image is eliminated, but the search for the face remains. To see how the notion of God's face persists, despite the ban of images, consider Moses' first meeting with God. When the hidden God calls Moses from the burning bush, he imparts his name, the Tetragrammaton. I am who am, is the most fitting name of God. On one hand, the name affirms the Greek notion, which, by the way, it predates considerably, of a God whose substance is pure act, and therefore whose substance could not be distinct from his existence. On the other hand, the name is not like the name God, or divinity, which signifies God in his nature, which is communicable, according to opinion, uh, communicable, uh, communicable means it could be um, said of many things, according to opinion, the name God can, though not in reality. Thomas claims without qualification that the name, quote, is used to signify the very substance of God, according to which that substance is incommunicable and singular, so to speak. That's the Tetragrammaton. He also says the Tetragrammaton signifies God as a this something, forte, perhaps. As the name man stands to Socrates, so the name God stands to the Tetragrammaton. 
by giving Moses his proper incommunicable name, God is allowing Moses to address him as someone who can call and be called upon, a natural prerequisite to being heard. God's gift of his name is the gift of, a, of the possibility of for common discourse. While the Old Testament's prohibition of graven images fosters a sense of God's transcendence, Scripture's focus upon the face of God also emphasizes his personhood. The face is that by which we recognize the person. We can discern that we are looking at a man at a great distance. We can determine his gender and narrow his race. But it is by having a good look at the face that we verify the identity. So Thomas says that the face of God signifies that by which we know God, as the face of a man is that by which we know the man. The face, as the seed of the senses, is the locus of impression. The face is what expresses feelings, reactions, and thoughts. Faces reveal to others our character and personality. It requires time and experience to read faces. The desire to see the face of God is, to, is a desire to know God as a person, as a man knows his friend or a son his father. When Moses desires to see the face of God, he is desiring to know the who of God. It is a, a, it is a desire that exceeds, at least in notion, though without excluding, the Greek desire to know the what of God. Although the pagan may know about God, he does not know him personally. Still, it appears to me that if a, if a pagan philosopher recognizes that there is a perfect being, which a pagan can, and if he recognizes that the perfect being is a person, i.e. an individual substance of a rational nature, then one natural human response to such a knowledge would be a desire to know the being personally. However, Aristotle understood that a human being, merely based on his finite nature, could not have friendship with God. There's some caveat to that, but that's the general teaching. The pagan, left to his nature, had no possibility of a common life with God, and therefore no personal relationship with God. Moses' expression of his desire to see God's glory can be called something more than a desire to know what God is. Aristotle notes the essential connection between the desire to see a person and love, eros. Moses desires through his vision to unite himself to the person of God, an act of love, of friendship. A God who reveals his proper name to man may also reveal his face. The gift of a proper and singular name for God is a gift of common discourse, therefore of common life, the act proper to friendship. Both the concepts of face and the proper incommunicable name bring to light the divine not only as a person, but also as a person insofar as he can put himself in relation to others. A name is a bridge between persons, as is the face. Man, 
who is made in the image, image and likeness of God, is capable through his rationality and his personhood of intimacy with God, of calling upon and being heard by God. Even more striking, man does not call to God first. Instead, God comes to Moses. Only by seeing human dignity in this context can one understand why the I am who am would care to intervene for an enslaved people in the ancient Near East, another reality beyond the understanding of Greek philosophers. Final section. Moses, whom God spoke to, quote, face to face as a man speaks to his friend, unquote, was the greatest of the prophets. Nonetheless, Moses could not fulfill his desire to see God in all his glory as a man. In the last lines of Deuteronomy, the author notes, quote, Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, unquote. The Pentateuch ends with the expectation of a new Moses, whom the Lord will know face to face. Christ, who avoids the slaughter of innocents, who flees from Israel to Egypt, who bears for the people the law of the Lord from the mountain, who fasts for forty days and forty nights, and who brings the blood of the covenant to the people of Israel, is the new Moses. The Gospel of John recounts a mysterious interaction between Christ, Andrew, and Philip on Palm Sunday. Quote number four. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Unquote. Christ's mysterious answer to the Greeks' desire to see Jesus should be read in light of his farewell discourse with his apostles at the end of John's Gospel. There Thomas asks, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Christ answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Then Philip boldly requested, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. Christ's answer reveals the significance of his mission. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The Greeks' desire to see Christ represents, at least implicitly, the pagans' desire to see the face of God. In our passage, Christ is the grain of wheat that dies, so as not to, quote, remaineth alone, in his immediate vision of the Father. The glorification of the Son of Man, Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, are the means through which we can see the Father in his essence and by his face. In the beginning was the Logos, who is the supreme truth. 
The author of the universe is an intellect, who therefore intends in his authorship the good of some intellect, i.e. truth. Man, the pinnacle of the universe, was made to see God in his essence and in the divine persons. Christ became man to enable us to do so. For this I was born, for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Accordingly, the church teaches, quote, the mystery of man is understood only through the word made flesh, unquote. Returning to our quote from Xenophanes, we see that man tends to consider God as if he were a man. God, in his mercy, has become a man. As man, Jesus is the way, that is, the model by which we may judge prudent action. As a bearer of revelation, Jesus guarantees the truths of the deposit of faith, whereby man, who, live, who necessarily lives by faith, may also live with the certainty of faith. As a physical substance, Christ is the living idol who can be looked upon and intended by the cogitative sense power in worship. We So, we see that God had prohibited the use of idols for yet another reason. He had already chosen a physical face. Christ's face. As a human person, Christ, who speaks with human words, has human reactions, lives with human habits and disposition, Jesus provides a more approachable person whereby we may enter friendship with God, opening the door to satisfaction of the Israelite desire to have communion with God expressed as a desire to see God's face. Christian understanding the Christian understanding of man and his purpose is the fulfillment of that, that of ancient philosophy and the wisdom of the Old Testament. The order of nature and the order of grace are not opposed to one, one another as if one had to choose between being a good man and being a son of God. In truth, all things harmonize, so Aristotle says. Through Christ, the Christian attains the union of the divine essence with his intellect in the beatific vision, satisfying all wonder and all love, as a desire for union with the divine. So St. Augustine writes, quote, Now joy in truth is happiness, for it is you, in you, God, who are the truth, my light, the salvation of my countenance, and my God. Thank you.